And we're back for this special series of how worlds collide based off an assassination in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I'm joined again by Ted Andre and Fred Burton, two excellent guests, two incredible backgrounds on these two individuals. But these two individuals, their worlds come together based on this assassination, based on how this one act has brought all of these different cultures and different people together. Ted, incredible background in the music industry, acting industry, in the industry. Fred, counterterrorism agent, going after some of the worst of the worst and finding and tracking down terrorists. How do these two people get together? How does that happen? Well, we're going to talk about a little bit of that today. Today, we're going to talk about, about the 1970s and about the early 80s. But what we're going to do first is we're going to backtrack we're going to backtrack to the 1960s, to the military, the MACV SOG. I'll, I'll get the acronym out later on, everybody else. But MAC SOG, if you've heard any stories about Vietnam, you've heard of the secretive nature of a task force, almost type unit of a division that goes after and does some incredible special activities type stuff in Vietnam. And Ted's dad was directly involved with that. Ted, Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us again. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. Fred, we're, your background's incredible. Your author background is incredible. You're just an incredible man. But you know what we're going to focus on right now? Ted's dad. I want Ted. Tell me about your dad. I mean, your dad lived a secretive life, a secretive nature. But I want to backtrack to his stories of the 1960s and early 70s. What do you know of his activities in Vietnam? Well, the first thing you know uh, growing up in that environment is you both of you gentlemen can probably relate to and, and a lot of the audience is you get used to not asking your parents, in this case, my father, what he did, because uh, he, I, we used to jokingly use the phrase, I'd like to tell you, but I'd have to kill you. And that kind of became a tagline uh, in, in pop culture to a degree. But there's the very nature of that work is you can't reveal it to your family for reasons that obviously they may become uh, imperiled at some point with that knowledge. So I would basically go by, I, I knew he was gone a lot of the time. I would see him in uniform a lot of the time. And some of the uniform, uh, to reference the MACSOG, had no insignia, which I thought was interesting. And uh, we had a lot of, we had a, a gun cabinet, of course, in the house. He taught me how to use firearms at a very early age. Uh, gun safety was a big thing. So there were these little pieces I would put together. We would go fishing and hunting and that sort of thing. But uh, he didn't really talk a lot about his work, except I, would, I knew he was in tremendous physical condition, for one. And he would always teach me these exercises to do on stairs and against a wall and push-ups and all this kind of thing. And mind you, I'm like five years old and he's getting me into this, uh, this training regimen and, and kind of giving me some insight into kind of like the way the world works, if you will. But it, from a very uh, top line perspective, not going into the details of the military, but I found that, for example, in school, when we would be asked, and this is, it's the nature of, of the system is what do your parents do? You know, you have to do the show and tell at homeroom, all this kind of thing. And I couldn't answer any of it. And they would kind of give me a, a disparaging look. Well, why don't you know what your dad does? And well, he can't tell me, but I know he's got an office in the Pentagon. And that phrase would usually calm things down and they'd move on to someone else. You know, that's that's exactly it. You know, when kids at that age, when they throw the Pentagon out there, especially the people think the Pentagon is more than it really is sometimes. But there is a lot going on behind the scenes. When you throw the Pentagon out there, it kind of shuts people up. 
But then you had those inquisitive minds. And you were telling a story about how you were poking around your dad's room, which a lot of kids do. Like me, I used to always poke. I'm like, what do they got going on in here? And you found oh. a catalog. Let's talk about this catalog or this booklet you found. Well, this this was interesting. This is when we were stationed in Germany in Wiesbaden. And uh, my sister and I, as kids do, you know, we find ways to amuse ourselves when there's uh, a foot of snow outside. And so we're just playing hide and seek in the house. And I go into my parents' room and underneath the bed, I'm trying to, you know, kind of get my hiding place uh, established. And I found a catalog and this catalog, I open it up as a, as a curious kid would do. And I see there's an umbrella that will deploy something like 50,000 volts uh, at, at, you know, close range. And then I flip through a few more pages as a briefcase that will fire a nine millimeter slug. And then I go a little further and there's a parabolic reflector that'll allow you to listen to a conversation 200 yards away. And at that point I became terrified. I closed the book, put it back under the bed and pretended I never saw it. But it reminded me of some of these things, some of the set pieces you might see in a James Bond or a, a you know one of the spy films that you see today. You know, when when you're talking about your father, I, I imagine a stoic warrior, nobody you know keeps himself, he's quiet. What was your relationship like? Was it, was oh, he it was like, a, yeah, it was great, but you're right about the quiet part. He didn't, didn't say a lot. And, but when we would drive in the car, we would always put the radio on. So, you know, I got really heavily into, you know, somewhat to his chagrin into metal at an early age. So I was listening to black Sabbath and, and, uh, all that kind of thing, Led Zeppelin. But, uh, yeah, he would play the radio. He would sing a lot in the car, which was interesting. You know, he, would uh, play a lot of Johnny Cash and and Elvis growing up, and and you know Mom was a big Beatles fan, so it was kind of a focus on more of the artistic side and more of the lighter side. So I believe in in hindsight, knowing what we've discovered amongst our conversations, is that was a nice way to balance out what the reality was from a day to day basis. You know, so this is nineteen seventies, and this is kind of where we're going to bring Fred into the conversation too. Is like here you are growing up with your dad, kind of in a spooky business, kind of in, a, in the IC type, Intel community type business. You don't really know a lot about it, but you know he wears a uniform. You know he's in the military, mm-hmm. but you're that that aura of secrety, secretive is around it. Fred, same time, young. Um, when Colonel Alon gets killed, it happens right down the road from fred but fred's a child now i want to you know i i was looking at i was reading some of the book and i was watching some documentaries on this about the assassination now mind you fred is a few blocks away you're with your dad you know listening to Led zeppelin in a car <laughs> actually no was zeppelin when did Ze- oh, before i get into the series business when did zeppelin really really kick off the 76 75 no zeppelin was much earlier in fact i would really? say late 60s uh, kind of like around the time that a lot of the the, the formations of what you refer to as metal or, or whatever okay. the categories you want to want to say. But Sabbath was always like my big band. But Zeppelin <laughs> was around the same time. You had the Doors, you had Hendrix, and of course Janis Joplin. And, and it's a a very very wide palette of music at that time that was uh, really groundbreaking and and driving culture and pop culture for that matter. Especially like the Alice Cooper stuff. School's out. I mean, who doesn't remember that? You know, the reason I wanted to bring that up, if you driving around with your dad is you're in a car you're mm-hmm. driving around. It's any day, like any day, your dad's military man comes back from work. Nothing really crazy going on. You're having conversations with your dad. You go inside. No problem. Your dad's hanging out in the driveway, whatever. Same thing with Fred. Fred's up the road, probably having a normal day, nothing going on. And granted, when, when Colonel Alon was killed, it was at night. But just think about this. He had two young children. 
two young children, almost about the similar ages of both of you. He gets out of his car. Out of the bushes comes an assassin, fires once. One round goes in and out, hits him in the heart. Gets shot subsequently, and then more times, an assassin is firing. And we're talking a regular man who just came home, who probably had those same conversations with his kids that day, similar to like you, just being a dad, being a military man, being a man in uniform, having a a semi-secret life. You know, his wife probably knew exactly what he was doing to an extent. And he gets murdered in front of his family. They're there. They hear the gunshots from an actual assassin. This isn't the movies. This is a real life. He stumbles 25 feet and he dies. He's laying there dying. And his family doesn't know about the assassin. They know someone killed, but they don't know if there's other people out there. All they care about is him laying there and dying. And I wonder what was his day like? What was his day like before he was killed, before he was just murdered there? And I think about like all these different types like me, like, you know, it's tonight. If I go out in my driveway and I get assassinated, what, and I, I have the young children like that. And I think about it, I'm like, it just, it's just such a crazy circumstance. Now, Fred, this catapults you into a different lifestyle. And, you know, did. Do you think this might have been one of the catalysts subconsciously that brought you into a life of service? Uh, Jason, I've thought about that for, you know, better than 40 years. Uh, in, in all probability, yes. I mean, I look at the uh, the events that took place for me subsequent to that. Uh, I certainly, you know, joined the same rescue squad that transported uh, Colonel Alon to Suburban Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland that night. When I was 17, uh, I joined in 1975, uh, two years after this incident, back when uh, Cadillac ambulances were the norm. And uh, Joe was actually transported to the hospital that night in a Cadillac ambulance uh, by Kenny Holden, who uh, is inside of Chasing Shadows and um, I'm still in touch with, and he's still at the rescue squad. Then I would become a Montgomery County police officer which was the um, local police that responded that night to the the murder. And, uh, you know, the one thing to think about, though, for all of us, as you set the stage here, Jason, and I was listening to Ted so fondly recall his father, is although you have this world of violence, this dark world that's going on, Vietnam, the chaos of Watergate, uh, uh, you know, the body ca- the body bag count every night uh, with Walter Cronkite. I remember watching that with my father from Vietnam. You don't expect someone to be gunned down in your neighborhood. You don't expect a political assassination to take place. You know, this is just your average little street in a very residential neighborhood at the time that was a hodgepodge of blue-collar uh, kind of workers. You had uh, government workers, you had diplomats, you had school teachers, you just had normal folks, you know, living their lives. And uh, a lot of them had their windows open at night. Uh, their doors were not locked. It was that kind of a neighborhood and still very much is, um, you know, a short distance away from Washington, D.C. 
I just and that's the thing is like so you you put on a badge you put on a badge and gun and you're you're working the streets what I mean patrolling those same types of areas obviously there's not assassinations happening all the time there's spycraft all over the place in DC we know that but what was it like getting the uniform on and now you're putting on this investigative look and when you're driving by and you're driving around those neighborhoods and you're like huh if someone a gunman came out of there how would he do it? Is that kind of like one of the things we start thinking about? Like, how would you assassinate someone and get away with it? How would you be able to fire five shots, kill a man, get in a car and leave and not anybody see anything? No witnesses, no evidence. Jason, I must have driven by that house. I don't know, a hundred times, if not more, um, especially on the, when I got off at two o'clock in the morning and I would drive home, I worked in the Wheaton district. Uh, which is a separate district in Montgomery County. And I lived in Bethesda, not too far from where the murder took place. And I had a apartment that I paid $250 a month rent for. Um, and so I would cut through that street at night. And sometimes I would just sit there and listen. And sometimes I would sit there and listen at the time that it took place. And I would think about how you could get away to your point. And for those not familiar with the area, you just drive a couple blocks and you can very quickly get into the District of Columbia across another jurisdiction, or you could jump on River Road and get to the D.C. Beltway and get into Virginia very quickly. So uh, it was a perfect kind of getaway. Um, And again, um, you find a man shot on the front lawn of a house in a time period when there is no internet, no cell phones, and all the local cops are dealing with radio broadcasts, right? So uh, it's just a different era in this time period, and information flowed very slowly. So lookouts and so forth, um, it, it, you could get away with murder during this time period. And, and that's the, the end of that kind of error that um, it really resonated with me. But one thing that troubled me is that how someone could get away with murder and then vanish without a trace and seem to have been forgotten. What can you describe? Like I have little bits and snippets. I've read your book. I want to hear from you, like when you were putting together the pieces of a puzzle with an almost modern perspective compared to what the cops and what the feds were like back in the 70s, when you started going over this and started really doing your own investigation and looking into this and other people were also continuing to examine this, what did you see the, the crime scene like later on when you did have this perspective? Well, uh, it certainly widened the aperture, meaning um, when I was a uniform street cop, I had no capability to investigate an international act of terror. Let's be honest. Uh, I was not a homicide division detective. I was just a cop on the beat uh, and a job that I loved. Uh, in many, many ways, I regret ever leaving, but that's for another discussion. Uh, and when I became a special agent with the State Department, I realized that I had a global capability, and I had access to information that local cops simply did not have during that time period. So 
that was the real education for me, Jason and Ted, was it was almost like a light switch, meaning uh, I went from a very uh, manual kind of operation in my own little police car, right, with control of just me, to the ability to relook at a lot of these things and to be able to ask questions of the CIA, the FBI. I was able to send cables to the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv and ask for information. You would not necessarily at times get information, but at least I had the capability to ask the questions. So um, the challenge for me, to be blunt, when I reopened this case was we had so many current terrorist attacks underway from embassy bombings to plane hijackings to to murders of Americans all around the globe that there just simply wasn't a lot of time for cold cases. And so I would have to fiddle with this as best I could after the boss went home and uh, or I would sneak cables in my briefcase and read them uh, you know, when I did get home. So that was the problem with this case. And, it, and I regret that mightily, Jason. I've, I've explained that to the family as well, that um, I could have done more. I should have done more. Ted's dad was alive during that time period. I could have tried to hunt more people down for first-person kind of interviews because by the time I started really digging a lot of these people had simply passed away. Well, you know, Fred, that's hindsight, right? Hindsight. We know that, you know, I've been in law enforcement for 20 something years now. There's so much, if I could go back 15, 16, 18 years now, I would do differently. And it's the same thing with everything. So I don't really, you know, you did everything you could. You're, remember you're maturing at the same time in your investigative career the way you were when you first became a, an agent compared to the way you were later on in your career, I guarantee is a lot different. I'm sure the family and everybody else respects your actions for what you did. I'm going to flip back over to Ted and I'm going to, you know, Ted, your, your eyes are also going like Fred, you're maturing in your knowledge of who your dad is as you're growing up. Seventies, you're a really young child, but eighties, you're starting to, understand you're starting you're you're probably rebelling a little bit as do a lot of military um quote-unquote brats do oh yeah um but let's talk about your dad and your eyes opening up and you finding out more about your father's history and your background let's talk about him like when you started realizing all of this sure one of the things that that became apparent is as we would sort of talk more and and I think he felt he could share some of what he did, not everything, of course, but certain aspects as I, as I got a little older. Then I started to get the sense that there's a phrase, uh, it's important what's not said. And so as I would start to hear the things that were relayed, I would sort of subconsciously put the dots together into things that I didn't quite have the answers to. And that led me down a path of, well, there's more to this than what I'm hearing. And I, and I could sense this by... Well, one of the things is he would communicate with us a lot of times uh, via tape. And so we would get voice recordings. And he spent a lot of time, for example, in uh, Morocco, uh, in Israel, in Japan and Iran. And uh, we would get recordings back, basically him talking to my sister and I. And I thought it would at first you get used to it, but then you 
you kind of sense based on the, your friends that you know. So my dad's gone for months at a time in another country and certainly doing something important by the by virtue of what I'm starting to learn. And then that just makes you more curious as to what is it exactly that's going on. And again, because this is before, you know, to Fred's point, too, it's before the age, the digital age that we're in now. So you can't really just go look stuff up, like what's going on overseas? You know, what are some of the different things I might expect in that landscape? So you just try to put the pieces together in your own mind. And then I would have more questions when dad would come back. And again, what he would share versus what was sort of left unsaid kind of gave me a sense of, of breadcrumbs in a way, too, which is leading full circle to where we are with this discussion today. And I'm still putting pieces together based on discussions with Fred and then just some of the recollections and intel I'll get, for example, from my sister when we just discuss names that come up. And it's uh, becoming a little more of a clear picture now. But I do recall that uh, when we would go out and, and just sort of hike or do things in nature, like some of the stories he would share and some of the, uh, the anecdotes just kind of led me down a path that there's much more to this than what he's necessarily relaying specifically. Hopefully that made sense. It does. It does. And that's one of the questions I had for you. So when was the first time you could recall him talking to you or your family about Joseph Alon? That, well, certainly the name was mentioned when we were in Virginia and he was at the Pentagon. So I remember Alon because I kept thinking it reminded me of Alon. And then more specifically, when he gave me the intel and the additional pieces of information, you know, in our last conversation, and it brought me full circle back to that point. And he mentioned, you know, see if you can help put the pieces together on who killed my buddy Joe. When the kill term came up again, then I thought, okay, now I've got to really go back and and just rack my brain for anything that I can put together between then and now. And then when I, of course, connected with Fred and try to put these pieces together. And so there wasn't a lot to go on, but what I did have and what I was able to get through the journals and the handwritten records has helped to put the pieces together a bit. But again, it's the type of thing you just can't share with your family. And like I always joke with Fred, I knew what the term sodium pentothal was by the time I was seven. And so, you know, obviously you just, you just can't get a lot of information specifically, but you put the dots together. You get good at being a detective in your own way. You know, when Fred, you know, he was an outsider when this happened, he was a kid. And then he gets a badge on, he's a uniform, and he's still an outsider. It's still a cold case. It still happened in his road. You can still kind of try to put together the case, kind of try to figure out what's going on using your, putting your, your police hat on. But then you get into the world, Fred. You get into that world where you can see documents. You can delve more into this. It is a cold case. What was it like when you first started pulling out the, pulling those layers back? Well, we had a uh, very small little cramped office um, at Foggy Bottom. And literally right outside the office was the bathroom that uh, the Weather Underground had bombed a few years before and took out three floors uh, in, in, during the, um, the 70s. And I opened up the – we had the uh, – accordion files stuck in your your typical gsa issued safes that were locked every night uh and with an s and g lock I, I remember that um don't remember the combo but um and i pulled out this alon file and 
you know, we had case numbers assigned and a CTO one case was an assassination case. So there was a number assigned to it, but in, when you opened up the file, it was just Washington post, Washington star at the time, newspaper clippings. There was a couple Reuters reports. Uh, there was a dog eared report uh, from an FBI teletype, not even a 302, which is an FBI, you know, report of investigation for your listeners. Uh, there was, um, uh, a picture, if memory serves me right, of the crime scene, just one. And so what I did was my first call was to the Montgomery County Police Homicide Division. I identified myself as Special Agent Burton and that I had been a previous Montgomery County Police officer could talk to someone who had this case. Of course, they bounced me over to the cold case division at that time. And that's where I first um, started talking to Detective Ed Golian who was the cold case detective on this. And we've stayed in touch since. And Ed, uh, you know, had to go and pull that file and they had a tremendous, you know, more information in his file to include uh, black and white photographs of the crime scene, um, reports from the FBI on evidence that was submitted, handed over to the Bureau for forensics, uh, no results, but that the fact that there was a chain of custody over to the Bureau, uh, FBI Baltimore had the case. FBI Silver Spring was a resident agent to Baltimore. So they they were point on this. And it was a protection of poor, protection of foreign officials case, you know, a PFO case under the FBI statute. So you had the FBI, the State Department, and the Secret Service to a lesser degree were all kind of monitoring each other. Uh, there wasn't any reports from the agency in there at all, the CIA, uh, that I can recall. So I just started hitting all the different agencies, trying to see who had what, and uh, kind of went from there. You know, Fred, I want to backtrack to, you know, we're going to talk about the assassination again real quick. And about this all going to make sense here in a second. Think about it. An assassin kills someone. They hop on a highway. The highway takes them to the airport, and they're off on a plane. They're probably out of the country. Think about timeliness. Nowadays, I could pick up my smartphone, silver alerts, red alerts, all sorts of alerts. Interpol red notice can go out within minutes nowadays. So when some, for everybody out there, an Interpol red notice is just basically saying, hey, here's a warrant. And uh, we're, we're taking a look at this information for someone flying foreign or going foreign back and forth. When you were talking about pulling 302s, and for everybody out there, a 302 is basically just a report of investigation or a report from the FBI. Up until the early 2000s, the FBI was still typing them through someone they were dictating to, who then had to review it for any errors. So when we're talking about writing up a report, that report may take days, maybe over a week to get. When you're pulling information, having someone physically go and get a file and then send it to you, now you're talking months maybe, especially for a cold case. So. When you started pulling back these layers, you had to wait. It was like a waiting game. It's not like you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to find Colonel Alon's killer, and we're going to bring him to justice. No, I'm going to find a piece of the puzzle, and then we're going to continue to hunt them for years. One thing about this case is a little bit different, and we talked about that before, about how Ted's dad tells Ted about his friend, how Fred 
finds out about someone getting murdered down the road. It's just not like technology. It's not like we're jump on Facebook right now and say, hey, you know what? Rest in peace, such and such. Ted eventually finds out about Colonel Alon decades later. And then he reaches out. How do you two come together? That's one thing I want to talk about today. Ted has his piece of the puzzle. Fred, you have your piece of the puzzle. How do these worlds collide? Well, I'll, I'll start off by saying once, uh, once Dad gave me that intel, he also threw in the, go to the Google and see if you can find something. So he, you know, he was uh, a bit internet savvy and that kind of thing. So he figured, you know, with my uh, uh, investigative chops that he had tried to instill, that I would be able to uh, uncover some some information. And I began by going to a, a friend of mine that I grew up with. We studied uh, Kempo together back in Boston, and he was also a special agent. He was involved in law enforcement. And I consulted with him and just said, hey, how, what's the best way to go about doing this correctly, aside from researching? And in parallel with him looking into his angle on that, I, of course, found Chasing Shadows. And I, and I thought, okay, here's a book about the subject. Clearly, this man and the, the author really understands it intimately. And so I need to get in touch with him somehow and just at least have a discussion, see if it's interesting and see if it, it sparks uh, his interest. That being, of course, Fred. So uh, Instagram, uh, I sent, uh, I believe it was Instagram at first, wasn't it, Fred, or was it LinkedIn? It's one of the two. I, I think Instagram is where we connected. It was Instagram, correct. Yeah. So we connected via, to, to bring it back to Jason's point about social media, that facilitated the connection, which so now we've got a digital connection combined with analog records in the form of my dad's journals, which has enabled us to kind of to collegially put a little more of the case together. And, and again, a big shout out to uh, Ed Golian as well. And from my end, Jason, uh, I wasn't surprised in the least to get uh, a quarry on this over the years. I've had similar requests from different people that uh, either said that they had information pertaining to this case or were interested in what happened and so forth. And so when Ted reached out and said his father knew Joe, Colonel Alon, and that his dying wish was for Ted to figure out what happened, you know, I immediately connected with Ted and we started a journey now that's been going on for quite some time. And mm-hmm. we've had a few conference calls with the retired detective now and and we're still marching along smartly trying to figure out, uh, you know, how this all interfaces and connects. But uh, it's a fascinating time in, in the history of not only our country, but in just general uh, world affairs. Gentlemen, that is exactly where I want to end off today. The next episode, we know the hunt is on. We know these layers are starting to get pulled back. I want to talk about the different characters in this story. I want to talk about that, but I do also want to know it is a different time in our country and we did have different warriors, but a lot of them are all the same. And that's why I, I want to backtrack. I want to continue flushing out more of Ted's father, Ted's career of what he knows about him. Something more about what those tapes were. Cause it tells us more about the times, the times when someone like Joseph Alon can get assassinated in his driveway and how hard it is to catch a killer. In a true crime world, now you have forensics, now you have DNA. When you have shell casings, when you have this, when you have that, you could really flush it out. But back then, it was an assassin's bullets fire out, and they're gone. They're, in, they're back to their home country. They're out of our country. 
So I want to get into that. I want to talk about Fred's career progressing into the terrorism world and getting into these different cultures. A young kid growing up in the suburbs of D.C. is a lot different than a, a world-traveled person who te like Ted. Ted's culture is a lot different. He traveled around with his father. I want to hear a lot more about Ted's tapes that he has from his dad and his Ted's career. And I also want to hear more about Fred, the young Fred Burton. So, gentlemen, I really appreciate you bringing us out. And we're going to talk more about Colonel Joseph Alon. But I also want to find out more about both of your worlds. And I really do want to hear about more about the – I want to talk about the 80s after this. The 80s and the 90s. That's my age. Well, I shouldn't say my age. I was in the 70s too. But, hey, <laughs> gentlemen, I appreciate you coming on. Everybody out there um, wearing a hat today during this show, it's called Deliver Fund, and they are one of the premier counter-trafficking organizations domestically in the United States. They're not a vigilante type group. They're out there providing direct intelligence support to law enforcement. They're a really good organization. Check, check out DeliverFund.org. They're doing really good things, and they're really providing a great intelligence snapshot of these trafficking organizations out there so please check out deliverfund.org ted fred thank you so much for coming on today thank you for having us thank you so much jason